Hello, welcome to the West Side Podcast. This is where we'll post some of our audio from our sermons on Sunday, and we're so glad that you're here. Westside's vision is to reconcile people to God through the grace of Jesus step by step. We hope you enjoy and thanks for tuning in. Happy Easter. He is risen. Say it again. He is risen. Praise the Lord. It is a joy to be with you today and to get to celebrate uh, the resurrection of uh, Jesus. Uh, It was really challenging to get here uh, today because um, the amount of ham that I ate this afternoon, there's no better way to celebrate the Jewishness of Jesus than with ham. Is that right? Can I get an amen from the the Gentile congregation uh, that is here? Oh my goodness. It's a joy to be with you. Um, today, we're going to spend a little bit of time uh, to reflect on uh, the resurrection of Jesus. And in a few moments, we're going to read a uh, text uh, from Scripture uh, to, that, uh, to that end. But before uh, I do, just some personal words to you. Uh, I represent, uh, in my full-time role as a, as a professor, I teach at Bushnell University. I teach the Bible and theology uh, to undergraduate students. And uh, on behalf of the university... Uh, and the team of people that I get to represent, uh, know that you are uh, raising an incredible generation of young people that we get to see in our classrooms. Uh, some of my favorite students have come from this church. Um, also some of my least favorite, but um, <laughs> a, a real mix. Uh, the truth of the matter is, um, uh, you are not merely tasked uh, with the responsibility of, um, of running church services and whatnot. You're, you're raising a generation of young people and I get to sit in the classroom and see what God is doing through you. Um, I also uh, am an ordained Foursquare pastor, so I'm a part of your denomination. And on behalf of uh, our district and on behalf of Foursquare, uh, I send greetings and love. Uh, it's a really sensitive moment in the life of a church when your beloved pastor transitions out. And I can only imagine that some of you today um, are feeling all the feels that come with losing somebody that you've been following for years. Uh, Brooks Rice is one of my best friends. Uh, I've known Brooks for over 20 years. Uh, We served at the Onyx House together. And I would be lying if I said to you, you did not lose an incredible pastor, incredible human. But the good news about being a Christian is that you and your obedience are to Christ and to Christ alone. And you serve Jesus. And that as a result of following Jesus, he's going to provide for you in due time. And it may not be when you want it or how you want it. But God will lead you and guide you. And you will have a shepherd. Um, And so in this season of time, as you discern what moving forward looks like, know that you're being held by a bunch of churches in the city that love you and believe in you. You're not alone. God, as we today uh, celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, I'm with a church that's in transition right now. Um, And in these moments where it's hard to know, God, what the future holds, it's really easy to be confused or lose hope. But our hope, uh, Jesus, is not in a human leader. Our hope is in the resurrected Christ who conquered death, who won the grave, and has defeated all sin and has by the power of the Father given us the Holy Spirit. There may actually be some people in this room that need to know 
In this moment, you're being called to step up and lead by the Spirit. Don't sit in the back. Keep coming. Participate. Keep giving. Keep serving. God is here. And God, you will be faithful to the West Side. You have been for a long time, and you ain't given up this year. In the name of Jesus. Would you say amen? Man, he's risen. I just am so jazzed today to read the Bible to you. I want to read uh, this morning from John uh, chapter uh, 20. I'm going to title my sermon uh, today, Meeting God in the Dark. If you have a copy of scripture, I invite you to find your way there. This is the resurrection story from John's gospel. Early on in the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went out to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running, running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb, and both were running. Both were running. Um, I need to make, before we move on, I need to make just two brief comments on, on the text that you see here. Uh, because this is really going to help us see what's going on uh, as we read this. So first, you're going to notice uh, this phrase, the other disciple. Did you notice that? in? Uh, I took the verse numbers out for your sake to make this as complicated as possible. Um, <laughs> but you'll see that phrase, the other disciple. Did you see that two times? Uh, and then often, you'll actually, when you're read, reading John's gospel, you'll come across this line that the person, somebody is being referred to as the one who Jesus loves. Now, the way John writes his gospel is he never tells us that he is the one who's writing it. John, John is one of the 12 disciples. He never gives us his name other than his nickname. The only thing he calls himself is the one who Jesus loves. And in this case, he calls himself the other disciple. Uh, but he doesn't name himself. He, uh, some of the, the New Testament scholars uh, call him the incognito disciple. Um, wait, I remember in elementary school, Incognito Mosquito. The, the, it was this cartoon that we would read about this mosquito that didn't want anybody to know that it was a mosquito. He doesn't want anybody to know who it is. He's the other disciple. And you'll notice two times, it says that Mary ran and then the disciples run. And why that's significant for us is in the first century, uh, it was uh, an act of, uh, how shall I say, um, it was an act of public disgrace for somebody to run in public. Uh, in fact, when you read the parable of the prodigal son, do you remember when the father runs out to the son? There's a reason that's in the text, because to run in public is a sign of public disgrace. You only do it in an emergency situation. Two times in the same passage, people are running. Uh, N.T. Wright uh, in his commentary on this, he says, it's really funny because something about the resurrection, something about the empty tomb makes people who normally don't run, run. They are running to the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached for the tomb first. And he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the linens, the, the linen lying there, uh, in some translations, it says the linen had been folded next to the, the place where Jesus had been laid, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. And the cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. That text right there, it's folded. Let's go to the next slide. 
Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first went inside and he saw and he believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus's body had been, one at the head and at the other foot. And by the way, interesting little, uh, little hyperlink here. If you remember when Jesus ascends to heaven, in Acts chapter one, you'll remember there are two angels standing next to the disciples as they're looking up to heaven. And what does it say about those two disciples? They were both, they were, they were two angels who were dressed in white. It's the same angels. We don't, we don't know what angels they were, but the, the same angels that are at the empty tomb were there when Jesus ascended. And they asked her, the angels asked her, woman, why are you crying? Why are you crying? And she says, they have taken my Lord away. And I don't know where they put him. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. It's by the way, the mark of most of our discipleship. We see him, but we don't recognize him. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? And then look at this. (laughs) Thinking Jesus was the gardener. He said, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him. And I will get him. And I want you to put in your back pocket for a moment who she thought Jesus was. Who does she think he was? The gardener. Okay. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned around and she cries out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which is a combination of the word rabbi and a word of essentially a designation of honor. She's basically saying, my dear teacher, which means teacher. Teacher doesn't grab it. It's my dear teacher. And then Jesus says, woman, do not Look at this. Do not hold onto me. Uh, In the Greek text, it says, do not touch me yet. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. This is the word of God. Would you say amen? Amen. What can we learn from this? Uh, In the middle of the pandemic, um, my my wife and I made a, a kind of a strategic decision. I'm not entirely sure it was legal or not. Um, <clears throat> but we, um, we made a decision, uh, this was about a year ago. So it was, it was before sort of the, um, the mask mandates had ended. Um, we, we decided that we, with, with some people that we really trusted and loved, wanted to start a small group in our, in our home. Uh, just a really nothing special about it. I mean, we would get together, we'd eat some food, we'd sing a couple songs, read a verse or two, sit around and talk. But I, it was weird. It was weird after the pandemic because it didn't matter what you were doing. Just being in the room with people was crazy. I mean, just being in the room was like, it was like looking at people's glory in their fullness. Like I, I had never understood I had never understood what the Bible meant in the Old Testament, in the Psalms in particular, when the Old Testament says repeatedly, God, don't hide your face from us. I'd never understood what that meant before COVID. What it, what it would be like to not see God's face, only see part of his face. And to be in a room of people and just, and just, and just see each other. And, you know, we, we, we wore masks until we weren't allowed to anymore. And then, and then we took the mask off. And I'll tell you, it was like, it was like a Christian love fest, man. <laughs> Being in a room with people, seeing their faces. 
a month and a half ago, one of the, 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 the men that I uh, co-led this group with uh, began to have some pain in his stomach. And uh, this last week, two weeks ago, uh, finally after a month of getting diagnoses and meeting a hospital, meeting different uh, medical professionals, spent seven hours in an ER trying to get help and uh, discovered that he has a, a fairly advanced uh, stage of lymphoma and cancer of the stomach. Uh, and uh, it was funny, you know, when he came to this, when he came to the group and he, and he told us um, that he had cancer, um, at that moment, you know, when he comes into the room and he says, you know, this is what's happened and I don't know what it means. I don't know if I'm going to live. I don't know if I'm going to die. I'm going to start chemo. I mean, he's facing uncertainty. At that moment, though, I was, I'm in the room, and I'm watching the small group respond to hearing about this diagnosis. And I remember, no matter how many criticisms I have about the church or whatever, you know, I'm young, I'm 41, I'm angsty, I've got problems with everything. <laughs> but all that angst goes away when you're sitting in a room of Christians when somebody needs prayer and all of a sudden you realize why you're a Christian again. And to watch, to watch this group, this small group of ragtag people that live off of Gillum and cook an okay meal and have okay worship and read some verses every week, what happens when somebody's in need and immediate, immediately watching the community of God come around somebody in their need. Hey, how can we help? Uh, we'll make that meal for you. Hey, we're praying that you're gonna be healed. We're not just praying that this is gonna work out okay. We're praying for total deliverance. What can we do? Can we pick the kids up? Can we take them somewhere? You need me to wash the car. There, there's some, when you, when, you've probably been in a moment like this where you've seen Christians all of a sudden get activated and you're like, oh, that's like why I'm one of these people. Because it's awesome. And you know what happens in those moments? You realize when somebody gets sick and we start praying for people for healing and you start laying your hands on somebody and going like, like we're not just praying. Like we're actually praying in the name of Jesus that that tumor that is growing in your stomach will by next week be gone so that the doctor who sees that will bend his knee at the name of Jesus. Because we, because we are a people who believe <laughs> we actually really believe in resurrection. Amen. Not just in this abstract, theoretical sort of way where like, oh, if you don't believe in it, you're not a Christian, sort of like weird abstract thing. No, 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 no. Like get around Christians when somebody needs prayer and watch how we all anticipate resurrection to not just be a day, but a reality here and now. Here and now. And it was a day. There was a day that Jesus was in the tomb and he came to life and he conquered death in the words of the Puritan, the day that death died. That's true. But that's not just a day 2,000 years ago. Resurrection is in the room. It's here. We meet three things about Jesus. We learn three things about Jesus. The first thing we learn uh, in this text um, is that resurrection, in, Christ, in the resurrection, Christ meets us in our, in, our, in our personal needs. 
And what I mean by that, that Christ meets us in our personal needs is this. I don't know why, but when somebody says Jesus loves you to somebody in this sort of abstract way, or you see a bumper sticker, or somebody yells it out of a car as they honk by, and there's this woman on my street, I don't know what, what she's thinking, but she, she honks and then she yells out, Jesus loves you. I don't know if she knows I'm a Bible professor and thinks I'm not saved or something, I don't know. But I don't know why. God's love doesn't really work in the abstract. It has to be, it has to be personal. Meaning, meaning the love of God has to go beyond just a statement of abstract fact. And it's true, God loves you. Don't get me wrong. And, and if you're the person who honked at me, I love you and that's fine. But the love of God doesn't make sense to us unless it personally hits us. I, I'm struck in the, in the passage that we just read. Um, <laughs> I, I'm struck. When you, when you, actually, when you take the resurrection account from John, it's really, it's really odd because when you take the resurrection account from John... There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When you take the resurrection account from John and you actually take it side by side and you put it next to the other resurrection accounts, yeah, I'm going to tell you something really, I have to deal with this in a whole, I teach a whole class on Johannine literature and we take like two weeks and talk about this. Um, when you take the Gospel accounts, they're like totally different from each other. <laughs> like, like in some cases, like the way John tells his resurrection story it is totally different than the way the other gospel writers tell the resurrection account. Now, John, by the way, 90%, 90% of the stuff that is in John is not in the other gospel writers. Uh, John has a, they, they call him the maverick gospel because he tells the stories that none of the gospel, other gospels tell. For example, John is the only gospel that tells that little tiny minor story you may remember of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Only in John. It's not Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's only in John. John has a different kind of memory than the other gospels. He's not wrong and they're not wrong. They're all right. But the way John tells his resurrection account is very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And someone, I can just hear a person go, well, doesn't that mean that one of them is lying? One of them's fudging it. One of them's telling the, the story wrong. And I want to say, listen, years ago, I went to Paris with my wife, Quinn, and we were there for a week. And when we came back and told people the story of Paris, we were talking about the same events. But I'm looking at her, I'm like, were you at the same place I was? We were at the same place, but you're describing it very differently. And that is the reality of the Gospels. You can experience the same thing and describe it differently, and it's still the same thing. And the way John tells this story is so unique because he writes himself into the story. Did you notice, what did it say about John? Uh, did you notice that it says that John, he ran, he ran to the tomb? Did you see that? And he doesn't just stop there. Can you go back to the first slide real quick? I want you to see this. This is, this is so awesome. The, the second paragraph. So Peter and the other disciple, so Peter and John, started for the tomb. Both were running. And you got to love that John writes this in here. Both were running, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. You've got to love that he put that in there. And he's like, we were both running, baby, but I took him, I took him down. 
I got there way before he did. He, he's a fisherman. He doesn't do any exercise. He sits in a boat and just throws his line in the water. And he's like, we both ran, but I kicked his butt. I made it there faster. And here's what's interesting about that. Just even that one verse right there. Here's what's interesting to Bible scholars about that one verse is that the Bible incorporates the personality of the authors. And here's why this is so beautiful for us. Because the gospel is not told by people abstractly. It's told by people who were actually there. So much so that John is like, we were all running to the tomb and I left them all in the dust. It's personal. And, and actually, I would argue that the differences between these gospels, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and see their differences, I would actually argue that the differences between these gospels, go and read them, they're all different. The differences between the gospels are actually evidence that they are trustworthy. And here's how I can say that. A number of years ago, I was living in Portland and uh, there was a detective who was a part of our church in Portland that my wife and I pastored and planted for about 10 years. And he told me something fascinating. He said, you know, when you're a detective and you're trying to figure out if somebody's guilty or not, you take the people that you think might be guilty and you, what do you do? You put them in different rooms and you interview them. And he said to me, you know the number one sign that people are lying to you is that their stories are the exact same. And he said the sign that they're actually telling the truth is they tell the same basic story but there's differences and that they didn't get their stories straight. And I'm struck that the gospels, they don't get their stories straight because they're actual stories. They didn't get into a room and say, hey, let's find a way to deceive everybody. These are actual stories. And the way John tells this is so, so powerful. He says, he's the only one who says this too. When, when, when Jesus comes to Mary, when Jesus comes to Mary, Jesus says, woman, don't touch me. Uh, in Greek, he says, don't touch me yet. Don't touch me yet. Don't hold on to me. And it's, it's an odd thing. Why, why would Jesus not let Mary touch Jesus. And it's all the more complicated by the story that follows up, which we didn't read, which is the story of a guy named Thomas. Do you remember the story of Thomas? Who couldn't believe and doubted and said, I will only believe in Jesus and the resurrection if Jesus will let me touch him in his side and his scars. And then Jesus shows up into a room one day when the disciples are all together and he says, hey, Thomas, you don't believe? Look at these. Look at this. Touch it. And for Bible scholars, it's an absolute myth. myth. It's an absolute, it makes no sense. Why would Jesus not let Mary touch him in the morning, but she tells Thomas to touch him at night? And, and then in the morning, he says to the woman, he says, don't touch me, but at night, he says, touch me. And the reason he does this, the reason Jesus does this, is because Jesus comes to Mary and he comes to Thomas in the way that they need to be met. Mary didn't need to touch Jesus. You know what she needed? She needed the God of the universe to say her name, Mary. And the moment, by the way, Jesus says, Mary, uh, one of my favorite commentators, Dale Bruner says, that at the moment 
at the moment that Jesus says to Mary, Mary, you go from BC to AD. You go from before Christ to after death. That moment, she hears her name and she believes. But when Thomas touches, he believes. And I think here's the point. Is that this Resurrection Sunday is not Jesus abstractly coming into the room and saying, God loves you. And yelling out the window some abstract statement, God loves you. He's not giving to you some general idea. He is coming to you today, here and now, and meeting you right where you need it. Some of you are mad at God. And you think that's a problem for God. I got news for you. Everybody who wrote the Bible got mad at God. Read the Psalms. You think your anger at God can keep God from you? In your anger at God, right here and right now, Jesus comes to you and he says, peace be with you. To the person in the room, you're all worried about the church and you're like, God, what are you gonna do here? I've given eight, 10 years and you just keep like, why, what's going on? You know what he does? He comes in the room and he says, hey, he says, I'm your shepherd. Let me pastor you. To the person in the room who's struggling with your sexual identity and you're like wondering, like, I've got these issues. I'm struggling with this. I wrestle with this. This thing hasn't gone away. Right in that, in that thorn in your side, Jesus comes to you and he says, I'm with you, bucko. I'm with you. And that's the thing. Jesus always comes to us where we need him. You know, it rains here in Oregon a lot. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but there's, a, there's an old, uh, yeah, you got the memo, you, you know that. There's an old Japanese uh, uh, poem that goes like this. It's, a, it's an old Japanese saying that goes like this. That when the rain falls, it's silent. But when it hits something, it's loud. And in a way, the love of God, it's silent. But when it hits a heart, it is loud. And today, Christ meets you where you need him. You need to touch? He'll let you touch him. You need to hear your name? He'll say your name. Secondly, when we look at this story, uh, we, we learn that Christ um, shows us his hidden self. And that is that Christ, he appears to be hidden, but in reality, he actually, he reveals himself. You know, at the very beginning of John's gospel, um, there's this really powerful section uh, where John, uh, he, he talks about this thing called the logos, right? The logos of God, the word of God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. You know, this passage is a powerful text. Uh, that, that idea of the logos was actually a, a Greek philosophical construct. It was, it was a phrase that Greeks used as a way of talking about the laws and the rules that make the universe work. It'd, it'd be like saying the Ten Commandments that make the universe. It's like saying the law of thermodynamics. It's the laws of the universe. The logos, the, 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 the Greeks talked about this philosophy of the universe that kept things Working. And it was an it. 
It was an it. It was a set of rules that were up. We don't know where they came from, but they controlled the universe. And so when John writes his gospel, uh, I want you to imagine that you're reading. And, he, and John, he's talking about the word. And he says, and the word was with God. And he, he was God. And, and all of a sudden, you realize pronouns are weird and matter because the logos for John, the logos was not an it. The logos was a he. It was a person. The word was a person. And that the thing that ruled the universe was not a set of rules. The thing that ruled the universe was a person. <laughs> it wasn't a bunch of rules. It wasn't the law of thermodynamics. It was that there was a, a being, a, a person that made the universe run. We, we tend to think of truth as a proposition, as a statement, as a, you know, the sky is blue or something, something like that, like a statement. When in reality, there is nothing further from the truth. In the Bible, the person, the, truth is not an idea. Truth is not a statement. Truth is, listen to Jesus. When he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. Truth is not a statement. Truth lived in a zip code. He ate food. He got dust in his eyes. Truth was a human. It was God incarnate as a person. If God simply wanted us to have a book, Mary would have written a book rather than having a baby. We worship a person. That's what's staggering. When you read the gospel, when you read the book of James, you know who James was? James was Jesus' brother. And he calls him God. There is no greater proof that Jesus was God than that. Because there's been, never been a moment in human history where you have ever thought the thought that your brother was God. That is the dumbest idea. I mean, I have stepbrothers and sisters, and I know there's no, they're not even, they're not even close to angelic. To call your brother God. Yeah, think about this. Mary, Mary worshiped her son. She, she is the only person in human history who could worship her son and not be an idolater. We worship our kids all the time. But she worshiped her son, who was God. Can you imagine how challenging it would have been to discipline your son, Jesus, when you know he's God? Tell God to go to his room and think about what he's done. <laughs> Telling the Lord of the universe, do your laundry. How challenging that would be. There's this debate right now. Truth is relative. Truth is, truth is relative. Now I ask you, Mary and James, actually they'd say truth was a relative. <laughs> he was our kid. He was our brother. Truth is not an idea. Truth is a person. And it turns out this truth <laughs> can, <laughs> can walk through walls. It is interesting. The disciples are in a room. They're terrified. I should say the male disciples are in a room terrified. Uh, it was the woman who went to the tomb, saw that it was empty, runs, runs back, and preaches the first Easter sermon. Uh, we call Mary the apostle to the apostles for a reason. Uh, and I've always loved that we're even having conversations if women can preach. <laughs> right. We wouldn't even know the gospel today if it wasn't for the women that preached. 
But it's the dudes in a room that are terrified. It's the dudes. They're terrified. They can't, they don't want it, they don't want to die. And I get it. Listen, when you've seen somebody get crucified on a cross, you have your reservations about boldness. I get it. But they're in a room terrified. And it says John tells us that John says Jesus appears as if from nowhere. And what seems to be happening here is that Jesus in his resurrected state can actually appear. He can walk through walls. We could have a long debate about the resurrected state. The number one thing that Jesus does, by the way, in the 40 days between his resurrection and ascension are the number of times it's recorded that he eats. And I think that's awesome because resurrection is not the end of hunger and that we will eat food for eternity. <laughs> Can we get an amen? From okay. But Jesus can walk through walls. There's a commentary by Karl Barth, who was a German theologian, who says, you know, it's really interesting that the end of Jesus, Jesus can walk through walls into a locked room. But the beginning of Jesus is a woman who has a locked womb. And he shows up in there. And what we see in the Bible is the story of Jesus. He's really good at showing up places where he shouldn't be. He's popping up all over the place. People can't recognize him, but he shows up and he's present and he's there and he reveals himself. And the point of this is that Mary can't recognize Jesus when she comes out of the tomb. She thinks he's a gardener and the disciples don't know he's in the room when he is in the room. And the point of the matter is this, that no matter how hidden you think God may be and no matter how far God may be from you and no matter how much you think he is hidden and not present, no matter where you go, he walks through walls. There is nowhere you can run that will take you from his presence. I love this line. Thomas Schmidt, one of my favorite New Testament scholars. This is, this, you came here just for this. There is a curious and important detail in John's story that really is the main point. Mary didn't recognize the risen Jesus until he called her by name because everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. Come on, come on. And the point of the story of Mary is that no matter where you go, no matter how locked that door may be, this God is in the room. He is there. Thirdly. And finally, today, Christ, he gives us a new beginning. And you, you will have noticed uh, in the text that I read to you um, the incessant use of this phrase, the first day of the week. Uh, John goes out of his way to say time and time again, it was the first day of the week, the first day of the week, the first day of the week. He's obsessed with this. Why does the first day of the week matter to John? Well, John's a Jew and he's read his Bible. And it turns out this isn't the first time in the Bible that you got a reference to something about a first day of some week. And that when you go to the very beginning of the Bible, God creates the universe. And you have this sequence of seven days 
in the old creation. Seven days where God culminates in this moment where he builds this whole thing finally to this day called the Sabbath day. But he builds this whole week up to the seventh day. That's the first week. And so that's the old creation. That's the, uh, the first week of creation. And John says that when resurrection happens, what day does it happen? It's the first day of the week. What's he saying? A new week has started. That is why, friends, Jesus Christ on the cross, Jesus Christ on the cross, what does he say? He says, die." What does he say? It is what is finished the first week. The old creation is over. The new creation has begun. In fact, what's this whole thing about the folding of clothes? Jesus folds his own clothes. What is the deal with this? You gotta love, by the way, parts of the Bible where Jesus does something that you wished everybody in your family did. Why do I have to do my own laundry? Because Jesus did. That's why. And we follow Jesus in this household. He folds his clothes. You go, why in the world? Why would you fold your clothes? Why do you need to fold your clothes? And the only reason Jesus folds his clothes, there's only one reason, I'll tell you exactly why. And the only way you can know is you go to go, gotta go read Hebrews chapter one, verse 12, where God says through the book of Hebrews that we are now at a moment in history where God is, quote, beginning to fold up the old creation and make a new. He has folded the clothes of the old world and he is now in a new set of clothes. Now I asked you to remember one thing. Mary comes out of the tomb and she sees a man. Who does she think he is? The gardener. Give me one more minute. <laughs> you know, when you go over to the very beginning of the Bible, the very first uh, chapter of the Bible, um, we're told this. This is actually Genesis chapter two. God's created the world. Uh, he has, before he's placed the man and the woman in the garden, we're told this. Genesis two. The Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he formed. And the Lord God put all kinds of trees to grow in the ground, trees that were pleasing for the good, for good pleasing for the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden, it was the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, friends, it, I, <laughs> that is the first thing that God does in the Garden of Eden. I'll read it again. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east. He planted trees. Now, when you plant trees, what does that make you? What's the very first thing God does in the Bible in the Garden of Eden? He's a gardener. He's a gardener. And by the way, for anybody in the room that cares about this stuff, this is exactly why Christians, you and I are called to care for this planet. It's God's garden. It's not ours. It's God's garden. It's not ours. He's the gardener. This is his garden. And I for years have listened to preachers get up and say, look at Mary. She came out. She, didn't, she thought it was a gardener. She didn't get it. And we go, well, she's a gardener. And my question is, was she wrong? She wasn't wrong. The gardener's back. The same gardener that planted trees in the Garden of Eden is in a whole new garden right now 
And now he's planting something new, the church, God's people. The planter, the gardener, he is back. And he is starting a whole new story. G.K. Chesterton, in one of his books, wrote this. On the third day, the friends of Christ came at daybreak to the place where the grave was empty and the stone rolled away. And in varying ways, they realized the new wonder. But even they hardly realized that the world had died in the night. And when they were looking at the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth, and in the semblance of the gardener, God walked again in the garden, in the cool not of the evening, but of the dawn. It is a new day, friends. You are alive. You are saved in Jesus. Old creation is finished. You are resurrected in Christ. Would you say amen? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the gracious King of the universe and the gardener who made the Garden of Eden, you are worthy of all of our praise and all of our worship. Every last inch of creation cries out to you. Despite wherever we may find ourselves and whichever hopeless situation we may believe we've written ourselves into, no matter how much sin and addiction we have managed to accomplish in our own lives, no matter how much death and destruction we have partaken in. We do not follow the old week. We follow the new week. We follow. We follow the new creation, the new Christ who has come out of the tomb and defeated death and darkness and won at all costs our love and one for us salvation, and one for us our resurrection. Jesus, you are worthy of all of our praise, all of our praise. Thank you, Jesus.